millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, on the 10th of March 2019, a few minutes after a Boeing 737 MAX aircraft took off from Addis Ababa Airport in Ethiopia, it crashed, killing all 157 people on board. Among them was Mick Ryan, a native of County Clare, who was involved in the engineering unit with the United Nations World Food Programme. Mick Ryan had been involved for a long number of years in development work around the world and his major contribution was posthumously recognised. He left behind a wife, Nisha, and their two young children. The accident was the second in five months involving the same model of aircraft. The previous October, all 189 passengers and crew in another Boeing 737 MAX were killed when that plane crashed into the Java Sea off Indonesia 13 minutes after it took off. In the wake of these disasters, a major investigation was launched into what exactly was the fatal flaw with the aircraft. There have been various inquiries since, including a criminal investigation by the US Justice Department and a series of hearings conducted by the US Congress. One low-level former Boeing employee is facing criminal charges in relation to negligence, but senior personnel have not had to answer for the deaths of 346 people. Nisha Connolly Ryan and other families of those who lost their lives are pursuing a case against the US Justice Department over a deal it made with Boeing that allowed the company and its executives to escape any kind of prosecution. As part of that deal, victims' families were awarded with a compensation fund of $500 million. But Nisha has refused to take the roughly $1.4 million which was offered to her. She's described it as blood money. Nisha Connolly Ryan joins me now. Nisha, it'll be... Three years now in March since your husband Mick died in that crash and quite obviously a life-changing and hugely traumatic event for anybody. But in addition to dealing with all of that, you along with others bereaved by the two Boeing crashes have been attempting to get some form of justice. Can I take you back to the immediate aftermath of the tragedy and how you first got involved in attempting to find out who exactly was responsible for the faults in the plane that was involved in the crashes. How did that start, Nisha? Well, I suppose for for us, for myself and Mick's family, we obviously, you know, there was the immediate shock and, and trauma of, of losing Mick. But we became aware very quickly that this was no ordinary crash, that this wasn't something, it wasn't an act of God, it wasn't pilot error, it was something that, you know, could and should have been prevented. And and we were aware of that, like, as I say, very early on. And it, it prompted both myself and, and Mick's mum to try and somehow alert the public to this. And and Mick's mother was was amazing. You know, in the beginning she she conducted many interviews and stuff and and spoke about it and 
And and really that probably was the start of us, you know, maybe questioning what happened. As the year went on, I think it was towards the end of 2019, the news came out that the CEO of Boeing, Dennis Mullenberg, was fired from Boeing. Now, there was various bits of information had come out in between. It was quite clear that the crash was related to the company putting profit ahead of passenger safety. But but details of what had happened hadn't emerged at this point. There was an investigation ongoing by uh, the Congress and the Senate, and they were conducting kind of, you know, live interviews. These were, you know, you can Google them and you find them on YouTube, you know, of of Mullenberg and various other executives and employees within the, the Boeing industry. Do you mind me asking you, Nish, had you or Mixmum made contact with other people who'd been bereaved by the crashes? Was there a group that came together in that respect? There was. Now, the group came together not because they, the group wanted to investigate. The group came together because I suppose it was kind of emotional and, and, and trauma support at the time. And also there was kind of a memorial and stuff planned. Families were heading to Ethiopia to the crash site you know, to visit the where it, where it happened. And so many, many families came together. And, you know, the usual way is, is kind of like WhatsApp kind of thing. They formed this group and, and they were in contact. But it, this was really more to do with mutual support and stuff. But as time went on, it also kind of became a space for people to post information, a media article about Boeing or FAA or something that was happening. So the group kind of connected in that way, but, you know, really just to kind of keep information flowing. So so there was, I mean, you you know, there was a many, many countries in, involved in this, many victims from different countries. So there was articles coming out, let's say, from America, from Canada. You know, we had our articles from, from Ireland. These were all getting posted and shared. So it kind of shows, you know, the type of media attention as well that was around this and, and what people were saying. And, you know, I suppose from that as well, there were a number of families that that came out of it that, you know, were really interested in going after accountability and, and, and justice. And I suppose in any kind of situation that would happen naturally anyway, that, you know, different people might take on different roles in a in any given situation. And, and in a way, I suppose this was no different. So this group anyway kind of came together. They were following up on various things like in America, uh, there was a family there who lost their 24-year-old daughter on the flight and they were attending nearly every Congress hearing, nearly every interview. They were sitting outside the court with photographs of, you know, every family member. They were holding up photographs in large photographs with one of the victims that was on the flight and people that couldn't attend this, they got someone else to stand in for them and hold them up, up the photograph. So it would give an idea of how many people were on board this flight and and kind of, you know, what we're dealing with. And then as the first anniversary approached, which would have been in the 10th of March 2020, at this stage, none of the reports had come out, uh, neither the congressional report or the Senate report. Just point out, the congressional report and the 
Senate report, both of them were done basically on the fact that quite obviously there had been a problem here in terms of Boeing and in terms of regulation and that the Boeing Max was not built as per design and it would appear the shortcuts were taken. They had those hearings to further investigate that in the US and as you said then, these reports began coming out in 2020. Yeah, because I, I suppose basically if, if we actually go back maybe even further before the Ethiopian crash, there was a crash before that in on the 29th of October 2018. This was the Indonesian crash. That was yes. less than five months before the Ethiopian crash. And already there was a, you know, like the, there was an investigation going on. And what we now know from the interviews that took place actually after the Ethiopian crash was information had been handed over from by Boeing to the Department of Justice already in relation to fraud. And of course, the person that they were already naming in this fraud was Mark Faulkner, who was later to be indicted. He was an executive with Boeing. No, he wasn't an executive. Oh, sorry. He, he was a low-level employee. So he was a pilot, uh, kind of a test pilot or whatever, working within the Boeing company. And basically, he's the only person that has been in indict, indicted in all this. So the way it looks on paper, you know, by the Department of Justice and, and Boeing is this guy killed 346 people, put so many other lives at risk, defrauded the FAA, brought Boeing into disrepute. One guy behaved in a roguish fashion over many, many years by concealing MCAS and the need for pilot training from the FAA. Yeah. It's a similar tale we've heard elsewhere, like, you know, not, not prejudging anything or saying, but there has often been a fall guy further down the chain that seems to have to take the rap. You know, it has all the hallmarks of that, to be fair, I think, one way or the other. Yeah. And I suppose what was interesting about Faulkner is he had left Boeing just before, soon before the, the first crash. So he was kind of, I suppose you could say he's kind of, he was kind of like an easy target then after the first crash, when Boeing kind of submitted all this information to the Department of Justice and naming him, because, you know, they could definitely say, oh, yeah, he concealed the information, he did this, he did that. So he's the person we're saying defrauded you. But this was before the second crash had even happened. Yeah. And that's vital because... A question immediately arises, if that became known and there had been a crash, why were the planes not grounded at that point? That's exactly it. And and also what's very interesting was, like, we actually only discovered this information that the Department of Justice had this information in January 2019 from going through hours and hours of these YouTube interviews that were conducted because this information didn't even make it into the reports. So, like, it was it, it was kind of, a, you know, when we kind of discovered this and said, hang on, the Department of Justice had this information, which means the FAA had this information, which means Boeing had this information, as in Boeing executives. Why weren't the planes grounded? And then after the second crash, it was three days later before the US even grounded the, the planes. They were the last to ground the planes. So, you know, three days after this second crash and with all the information they had, they were still insisting the planes were safe to fly. Several phone calls. Yeah, the FAA, I suppose, just to point out to people who may not be aware, is the regulatory at the Aviation Regulatory Authority in in the USA. Um, as we say with congressional hearings, now one 
person to emerge when a lot of this starts tumbling out after two awful tragedies. One interesting individual to emerge from a lot of that was a man named Ed Pearson. Could you tell me about him, Nisha? Well, yeah, Ed Ed Pearson um, has come out as one of the main whistleblowers in this whole Boeing saga. He was the senior production manager at Boeing between the years maybe 2008 and 2018. And actually he left prior to the, the first crash. He left that year, I believe. And during his time there, the, the MAX was designed, certified and had started to be produced. So... At one point, they were producing, this would be, let's say, from 2017 onwards, they were producing maybe 30 maxes a month on the production floor in Renton in Washington. And because it was a plane that, um, you know, was designed for fuel efficiency and, and it was the... Boeing were were really in a trade war with Airbus because the Airbus, the Neo 320, had also um, was selling fast. So they ramped up production, basically. And at one point, they were producing more than 50 planes on the production floor. And if you can imagine, these are people that are producing these planes, not robots. There's no robotic precision in, in putting these planes together. And they were they were producing nearly two planes a day were were exiting the production floor fully fully fitted fully finished and ed was keeping track of all of this and he became very concerned about production quality issues on the the production floor so he alerted the executives in boeing and and senior managers of his concerns and he basically asked that the production be shut down that they they literally shut down production and they they look at what they're doing, they look at their processes, you know, they, they just step back from it at one point. And they never did that. And he he literally, he, he has letters, and the, these are available for the public to see on, on his website, where he's he's requesting this and, and begging them to, to shut it down. And this was, as I say, prior to the, the two crashes. And Ed has said and continues to say, that the production issues that were on the factory floor in Boeing contributed to the two crashes. And he also requested that um, when he was being interviewed by Congress and he, he spoke to Congress and requested that the FAA carry out an investigation specifically on the production factory in Renton. And the FAA has never carried out that investigation and he continues to call for it. He himself has conducted his own investigation and believes that, based on his investigation, that there were and there are quality issues around the production of these planes. He's an incredible person. I have spoken to him personally. A lot of the families have spoken to him. And he is just somebody with a, with a, a lot of integrity and a lot of knowledge in this industry and specifically within those closed doors in in Boeing. And he does not want to see another crash and he he wants to see quality and excellence in the the airline industry. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Now, in relation to the actual crashes, there was culpability, certainly on paper, in relation to Boeing for that. And as a result, the Department of Justice, in an investigation, investigated them uh, in a criminal manner. 
And as I understand it, ultimately, they reached what's described as a deferred prosecution agreement, which is, I think it's fair to say, a kind of a form of corporate plea bargaining. And out of that, Boeing were let off might be the right word, but the agreement was that Boeing would pay a fine, pay compensation to airlines and open a $500 million fund for victims of the crash, bereaved people from the crash. That has the whiff of it, Nisha, if I may say, of sort of buying their way out of it. Yeah, and and what's really interesting, Mick, is that back in 2020, a group of the, the the victims' families got together and contacted the Department of Justice to find out about a criminal investigation. In other words, was there one ongoing and whatever, and and wanting to to be part of it. In other words, to find get information, and they were told at the time that there was no investigation ongoing. So when the news came out, and and we found out on the media like everybody else. When the news came out that this settlement had been reached between Department of Justice and Boeing, and the and this was based on an investigation they had conducted, we were all in shock because we were saying we were told there was no investigation, and and then there is a settlement, and in America there is a law called the Victims' Rights Act that is there to protect the victims' families when. It's kind of like, so you have the Department of Justice working with who essentially is the, you know, the defendant or whatever in this case. And they come they come together and come up with an agreement that suits the defendant or whatever. And the victim's families are left completely out of the loop. So this act uh, came about to make sure that wouldn't happen, that we would be part of any settlement, that we would... We would have a say that we would be able to kind of say, well, this is where, you know, um, we would like to see justice being served and, and accountability and everything. And that you have an opportunity to put your own case and view forward. But uh, we we weren't allowed that opportunity and, and we were effectively lied to by the the U.S. Department of Justice when they said, you know, there is no investigation. And then this came about. Yeah, that is pretty crucial. I mean, you know, I suppose for us here in a different form, the criminal justice operates differently. For example, if there was an equivalent here, I'm assuming the DPP would have been the body uh, involved. And even in the event that they'd reached an agreement or something with somebody, the issue would still have to go to court and be certified in court. But they do things differently in the US in that you can have that sort of an arrangement. Now, as you say, the crucial aspect to this is you can have that sort of an arrangement, but a safeguard in it is that the victims must be consulted. And not only were the victims not consulted in this, but as you suggest, when they inquired about an investigation, they weren't even informed that an investigation was taking place. That seems pretty serious thing to be at. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest with you, I I can't understand it. I can't understand how this has come about, how how it's such a blatant violation of our rights and and how we're even in this situation, you know, um, like what what's what's very strange about all of this is this deferred prosecution agreement came about on the 7th of January in 2021. It was about two weeks before the Trump administration uh, left office and the new administration took over. About one month prior to that, one of the attorneys in the Department of Justice, she handed in her resignation. But she's also the same attorney that signed off on this agreement. And she's also the same attorney that less than five months later, she joined the Boeing defense law firm Kirkland and Ellis in the US and, you know, became one of their associates in, in that law firm. It, you know, it, it just seems like I, 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 I just can't seem to understand how a situation like that can arise. Yeah, I mean, that does seem crazy. And it's not dissimilar. I don't know, people may be aware in terms of the way some of these things operate in American, in corporate America. There, there was a, a similar scenario depicted in, the, the, there's been recent series of books about the whole OxyContin issue in America and the company that ran that and that there was a situation with one US attorney. They were taking the company to court and suddenly a very apparent nice agreement for the company was reached and before you knew it the civil servant the lawyer who was involved in that ends up working for the company and what you're describing there Nisha is something very similar and it's sort of beggar's belief that that kind of thing can be done particularly as you say one side of the arrangement was left completely out of the loop yeah and and then the fact that there was such such a blatant you know like okay there there's no law that says this someone from the tar- department of justice can't join another law firm but you know what what is justice though if there if within the space of 5 months someone that signs off on an already kind of sweetheart deal for Boeing and then joins the same law firm that they they were co co signing on a on a deferred prosecution agreement. Like it, it just beggars belief, you know. Um, There's massive conflict of interest. I mean, it's very obviously it was, certainly would be obvious to us here anyway. Yeah. You know? No, one aspect of that, as I say, was there was a fund opened for the victims, and as I understand it, somewhere in the region of one point four million dollars would have been offered to you, but you've decided you're not in a position to take it. Um, no, I like I make basically the way I see it is this agreement should never have come about. We filed a motion to challenge the US Department to say we believe our rights have been violated and that this agreement should never have come about without consulting with the victims' families. So... I, I've refused to accept what they call the Boeing Compensation Fund to the families, uh, which, as you say, was $500 million divided between 346 families. And as a way of kind of, you know, so-called compensating us uh, for the criminal behaviour of Boeing and the loss of our loved ones. I I just don't see how I can say at one side, this is wrong and this shouldn't have come about and yet take the money at the same time. So I've refused to take the money, basically. 
I think people would see that as a very principled stand, Nisha, particularly as you say, and you're left widowed and two small children. It's um, it's a very brave decision on your part. The way I see it, Mick, is that like there's no amount of money that anyone could give me, you know, when justice hasn't been served, when when or you know our rights have been violated. Like, what is the point of justice? What is the point of having? Uh, laws, you know, if there's nobody there that's going to follow up on them. So, you know, refusing to take this money, as far as I'm concerned, is a very small price to pay if we can challenge, you know, this 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 agreement and 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 how this came about. It's as simple as that for me. I mean, you know, I don't see it any other way. And so, as things stand, yourself and some of the other families, you know, as I understand, you, you you've retained a very eminent legal figure who who's, uh, uh, has a track record in helping victims. And your objective is to challenge the legality of that agreement that the Department of Justice in the US made with Boeing. Um, and if you're successful in challenging that, Nisha, where does that leave things then? I suppose it, 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 it sets the track for a, a journey on uncharted waters because... There is no roadmap in this case. The, this law came into effect about 15 years ago. And the only time it had ever really kind of been been used or was operating was for the Epstein case. And then he ended up committing suicide, or or at least that's what we're told. And the whole that whole case for the victims' rights fell apart. That's Jeffrey Epstein, just to point out to people who had been accused of multiple cases of, of abusing um, underage girls. I think, yeah. So if if let's say that case had continued, we would at least now have some idea of where we could end up with all of this. But we haven't. We have no idea. All we know is we got. We have. We have to take it step by step. So right now we're challenging the motion to have our voices heard. Once we have our voices heard, there will be another step. And that's, by the way, if they agree to to this motion, because like the Department of Justice now will have a right to respond and Boeing will have a right to respond to our motion. And then all of that will have to be taken into consideration. And then the Department of Justice, again, will have to come out with their, you know, statement or adjudication or something. Then, depending on that, there might be an appeal. And then, you know, like there could be several months, let's say, involved in the process where we are right now. But, you know, it's a path that is definitely worth pursuing and, and following up on, because in this agreement, more than anything, all executives were given immunity from prosecution and basically were said there was no widespread wrongdoing across the company. So the company and the executives were given, effectively given immunity. And as I say, then there was two low level employees were targeted with the wrongdoing. And even 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 someone high up in the FAA has recently said that Faulkner, who has been the only person indicted at this point in time, has been scapegoated by the Department of Justice. And that's someone that is high up in the FA has said this in a in a recent presentation, I believe, to Congress. So, you know, this is this is also about public perception of US justice. You know, what what is this all about? What's what's going on here? 
And also it's about corporate America. And, and as you rightly say, in, in relation to the, the pharma industry and everything, you know, it really does just seem that corporate, corporate America can get away with murder. Absolutely. And I, I wonder as well, Nisha, is there anything in it that the whole idea of not consulting anybody and going through with this on the basis that a number of people like yourself, quite obviously, and others are not American citizens and did they therefore think perhaps, or would it be an issue or was it explored, that they might be able to skip past this because it wasn't exclusively something that would perhaps, I don't know, generate a lot of publicity within the USA itself? So there are people that are named in this motion that we filed against the Department of Justice that are American. Um, and they are quite high-profile Americans now based on this, this case. And there's also Canadians there and, you know, various other countries, including myself. But I think that this is as much as if, if there wasn't Americans on that flight, we probably wouldn't even be sitting here talking about congressional reports and Senate reports and all the rest of it. I think the mere fact there were Americans, you know, on the plane uh, really elevated it to that level in America. But the fact that, you know, this this is also a global issue and this more, more than anything is about passenger safety and how we how we the public are considered when it comes to American, big American industries, you know, are they putting our safety first? Just to put it in context for you in terms of monetary value, between about 2013 and 2019, Boeing spent over 60 billion on dividends and stock buybacks instead of putting this, any of this money into safety, into passenger safety. Instead, they were hiding MCAS, you know, making sure they didn't have to have additional pilot training, using an old model airplane and calling it the MAX and putting these other features on it in order to save money, in order to make sure they didn't have to go through certification from scratch, and in order to make sure the MAX was flying and lots of them were flying and they could sell so many of them in order to make big, big money. And again, in case 60 billion isn't some, you know, it's kind of something difficult to get your head around. In 2012, the share, you know, the Boeing shares were worth about $60 per share. By 2019, in buying back all these stocks and, and dividends, they went up to $324 per share. And they're still worth something close to $300. So they haven't really been affected by the scandal. They might have lost some revenue, but their stocks, their shares, the confidence in the Boeing company still remains at a high. Yet nothing has changed. Like, except for Mullenberg being fired, there is, it's the same board of directors. It's the same people making the same type of decisions inside in this company. God, yeah, when you put it that way, I mean, it, it's uh, there's definitely something about corporate America. Um, I suppose the other thing that strikes me is you're talking there about the beneficiaries from that are among the wealthiest people and the wealthiest interests in the world and people like your late husband Mickey was involved in the UN World Food Programme helping the most vulnerable, the poorest people in the world as well and you just see the complete contrast in terms of interests and in terms of uh, what people are looking out for. 
well, that's that just seems to be the cruel irony of all of this, Mick, because, like, as you say, like, Mick was doing his job, which was trying to protect the most vulnerable people in the world. He was he was going to some of the most dangerous places, um, you know, that he was coming close to situations where he could have picked up a life-threatening disease such as Ebola. He he was working in these areas and yet it was getting on a safe flight is what killed him. What should have been a safe flight? You know, the plane was only six months old. It was branded as the Boeing best in the world, best, you know, they, they are the leaders in the airplane industry. And he shouldn't, that wasn't something that he needed to to worry about. And also where he was going wasn't even on the high risk end of things. But it was it was that flight is what killed him. And that that's what is really unfathomable about all of this, that that this that this could happen. And for yourself, you obviously want to seek justice. And um, I think an awful lot of people could relate to it. The other side of that is. Are you prepared for the fight ahead in terms of you're talking about something that could keep you occupied for years? We know the way the law can be manipulated. We know the way money talks so loudly, particularly in the US. You could be facing a long battle. To be honest with you, Mick, right now, the thing I'm more scared of is that we won't have a battle, that that we will be dismissed by the Department of Justice very early on because... They won't, they won't want a scandal like this, you know, coming in front of them. How is it the Department of Justice could allow this to happen? OK, so administration changed, but it shouldn't influence the Department of Justice on whether it's Trump or Biden or whatever. So my my greatest concern right now is that will, will we actually get somewhere, you know, with this first hurdle? More than anything, what I, what I would want is I want... The, the truth and the full truth to come out. I want justice for all the victims of these two flights and I want accountability and and not scapegoats, real accountability. And then, you know, maybe we can get some sense of peace or closure over this. But until that happens, I don't think we ever will. To the best of your knowledge, is there any political influence in this whole process or, I mean, for instance, going back again to our understanding of a lot of these things, you'd have a, a DPP that's a completely independent entity. And I think largely to the greatest extent, people accept its independence. And, and I think it'd be fair to say, don't think, uh, for example, here that the DPP is that influenced by the body politic. It's a different setup that way in the US. I mean, is the system susceptible to political influence on behalf of the victims, for instance? Well, okay, let me put it this way. Again, I'll go back to how is it the same attorney that had resigned in December, signed off on the DPA with Boeing and then ended up working with the the lawyers that she co-signed the DPA on, the, the lawyers for Boeing. Like a country that that can happen in, that, okay, there's no law there that says that, you know, you that can't happen. But the the integrity of it um, and and how it, it can be ab- abused, to me, just uh, is very concerning. 
And finally, Nisha, tell me, how have you been doing yourself? At, at the time, you, you were living in Rome, I think, where you're based there and you, you, you've moved back to Ireland. How, how have things been for you? Well, like Mick, I was living in Rome, as you say, and I and I had to, I continued to live there for about a year or so after the, the crash. And, and we also went through the first part of COVID um, there, experienced that. And I came back to Ireland without my, my husband. And that was an extremely difficult journey and it remains a difficult journey. And I think this will always, you know, be a devastating, will always have a devastating impact on us. You know, he he was he was my soulmate and the father of my kids who are now growing up without him. And I it, it's it's just very difficult to imagine a world without him. And I've already have to experience three years of that. And yeah, it, it it's just a, an incredibly difficult journey to be on. And in the event that you get some accountability from the route you're on, would you expect some element of closure from that? I think it would at least give give me a feeling that there is some justice in the world that if we're looking at people keep saying you know oh you're taking on the giant you're you're just a small fish you know um it's david and goliath and if we're to have any kind of belief in the world and belief for our kids for the future then we've got to see justice in this and i think that might give us a renewed sense of hope in the future in terms of getting peace from it or closure, whatever you want to call it, I don't, I don't know. It's, 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 it's not something I can answer, but I want to feel that, you know, corporate America is not something that's untouchable. You know, that the law, that the same laws that apply to the rest of us apply, apply to the wealthiest people in the world. Nisha Conley Ryan, thank you very much for talking to us today. That's it for today, folks. This is a story that certainly those of us in the media have a duty to continue to report on and monitor. I think Nisha has pointed out all the issues that arise from it, and the least it deserves is constant vigilance. I'd like to thank Nisha for joining me today. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon, and thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.